Richard. Can everybody hear me? Right. Um, thank you, Ali, for reading out the scripture. So, yes, we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what we're talking about at the moment are the commands of Jesus. And last week, Sarah very kindly spoke on um, love God with all your heart. And this week, we're looking at um, what Jesus also said about loving your neighbour as yourself. And it's interesting, because these two, Jesus obviously promoted, but they were also the first two of the Ten Commandments given out in the Old Testament. So I'm going to look at... I'm going to look at... um, Loving your neighbour, but look at it through the eyes of this parable. And I've got a couple of questions and a couple of thoughts to kind of throw out there before I start rambling on. Why, in the situation of the Ten Commandments, in this situation here, are these two together? Why does it say, love God, and why is number two, love your neighbour? Surely with the Ten Commandments, like don't steal, don't have adultery, don't kill, they're all kind of quite important rather than go and share the love. Why is it love God, then love your neighbour? As I read this scripture, who do you identify with in the story? Do you identify with the Samaritan? Are you always the person that's there picking somebody up, scooping them up, helping them on their way, coming to the rescue? Do you identify with the priest or the Levite? Is work always a bit too busy? You're always called to be doing something else? Is, is, is time too restrictive? Is it too, you know what you should be doing, but actually there's something else that you're drawn towards? Or dare I say it, do you resonate with the victim? Do you feel like you're always walked on by? Do you feel like people pass you by, step over you? Christians even, maybe too. So in the context of this title, Love Thy Neighbour, as I say, we're going to look at it through the Good Samaritan. We're going to look at the issues of God's grace versus human greed. The difference in attitudes of God's attitude towards things and our attitude towards things. We're going to look at the topic of selflessness, the Samaritan versus selfishness. We're going to look at God's attitude of being people-centred and quite often our attitude of being self-centred. If you think of the internet and Facebook, when was the last time you saw somebody post, you know, is there anybody out there that I can come and have coffee with who will keep company for the afternoon? It's always, I'm having this for tea, I'm going here on holiday, I'm going there this weekend. It's all about me and I. So as a preposition for this, the spiritual principle we're going to address here is that because of God's costly, selfless love, we should be motivated to love our neighbour. To give you a quick overview of the structure of today, most of you have heard me preach before, you know what I'm like, and you know that I really like to get my teeth into scripture, and I really like to expose every detail, and I like to find out what's God saying to me in this. So I'm going to start off with, ex- with an exposition. 
Then I'm going to move on to a modern-day illustration, something that's happened very relative to this, to this particular bit of scripture. The third element is that I'm going to suggest an application, but a really effective application of how we can make this contextual for us here and now, this year, this town. And then I'm going to draw it to close with a very short conclusion. So, we'll start with the scripture. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. In the culture, when somebody was teaching, people would be sat around on the floor listening to them. And for somebody to stand up and question was quite confrontational. Perhaps a bit like somebody here standing up and questioning me in the middle of me talking, it would be seen as like quite a negative thing to do. So we have this expert in the law stand up and almost front up to Jesus. And he asks this question. Teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the man of the law, that's the lawyer to me and you, he starts off with this flawed question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Not anybody else, it's all about him. What can I do for me? He doesn't even say, what can I do for God? What can I do to best obey God? How can I best serve God? It's what can I do for me? And what does he want? He wants eternal life. Don't we all? Let's face it. Nobody really quite likes the idea of dying. We all want eternal life. It's something that health insurance companies play on, this fear. I was looking into Walt Disney. Walt Disney looked into cryogenics and having his body frozen. And he wrote to the scientists and, and he, he did all the preparatory work and all the investigatory work to find out if it could be done. And they were going, well, we think it can be done. And he never actually wrote it in his will. And then the irony is, he died, and his death would have been perfect timing because two weeks later, the first ever person was frozen. But the reality is, he wanted eternal life. We all do. And the lawyer says, what can I do to inherit it? An inheritance cannot be earned. Nobody can do anything to earn an inheritance. Inheritance is always a gift. I looked at the definition. So the definition of inheritance, bequeathal, endowment, birthright, provision, legacy, heritage. The reality is everybody sat here, whether you've got blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes, blonde hair, redhead, brunette, stocky build, sausage mitts, skinny, whatever it is, you've inherited it and you couldn't turn it. It was passed down to you, it was given to you. And this lawyer starts off with this flawed question, like what can I do to earn my inheritance? The irony is the professional has completely missed the point.
So Jesus comes back to him. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? It's a bit like assuming him. It's a bit like, well, you're the professional. You've stood up to me. You tell me. So the lawyer replies back to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. Perfect. Jesus comes back to him and says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's like 10 out of 10, top marks. You've got the answer. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, who is my neighbour? He's tipped back into the selfishness. He doesn't really get it. And it's like Jesus is saying, you've passed the qualification, but you didn't get the subject. So he gives him this parable to try and make it simple for him. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man and passed by on the other side. A Levite, when he, when he came to the place, he also saw him and he passed by on the other side. The priest had this issue and the issue was that if he touched this man who was half dead and it, he rolled him over and he was dead, then he couldn't actually help attending the service because he was ceremonially unclean. So he looked at the man and he had this decision, do I do God's work or do I outwork God's work? And he thought, I'll carry on by and I'll just, I'll go to the service and I'll do God's work. The Levite, basically the priest's assistant from the tribe of Levi, has exactly the same quandary. Do I do God's work or do I outwork God's work? And he comes to the same conclusion and he carries on by. But then a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. What's lost on us here with this English is that the victim is a Jew and Jesus is making the hero a hated outsider. Because the Samaritans, well, they were literally half Jew, half Gentile. They were Jews that had intermarried in with the Gentiles. They were literally a half-caste. And so they were despised. And so Jesus, as this hero of the story, picks a hated outsider. The Samaritan, he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. And then he put the man on his donkey and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. In those days, they would have put wine on a cut because it was a bit like an antiseptic, wash the dirt out and um, cleanse it. And then they would have put oil on and that would have been a bit like the equivalent of us putting pseudocreme or Vaseline on to kind of seal it, stop any more dirt getting in. And the logical thing 
is to wash it out, seal it, and then bandage it. But this guy doesn't. This guy bandages first, and then tips the liquids on. Why has the Holy Spirit gone to the effort of that detail? He's underlining how half dead this person is. This person wasn't just had a bit of a black eye, a bit of a kick around the floor, a bit of a scuff. This person had been properly attacked, properly stabbed. He was half dead. The next day, he took out two denarii, the Samaritan. He gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you may have. I'm going to paraphrase what happened there. The Samaritan took pity on him, ministered to him, paid a price for him, left him in the care of another, and said he would return a second time. For some of you, a big penny would have dropped then. So I'm going to repeat it. The Samaritan took him, saw, took pity on him, ministered to him, paid a price for him, left him in the care of another until he returned a second time. Jesus is talking about himself here when he's talking to the lawyer. He is pointing to the attitude of costly love versus self-centeredness. He's trying to kind of get him back on the right tracks. Jesus was the hated outsider with the Pharisees. They absolutely loathed him. Jesus offers salvation to us. We are the people that are half dead. Jesus has the answer and the key, eternal life. Jesus has left us in the care of the Holy Spirit until he returns a second time. Back to the scripture. Jesus says, which one of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That scripture wasn't just spoken to and written down for the lawyer. It is as relevant for us today. A bit like when Rosemary spoke those words in Romans. They weren't just written by Paul for the people in Rome. They are as relevant as they are for us nowadays, here and now. That applies to all scripture. This is a living word. This speaks to us now. It is important for us now. So when we read anything in scripture, it can be Abraham. It can be Abraham had his faith accredited to him as righteousness. Those words were spoken to Abraham. They're also relevant to us. The reality is, a while back, I can remember I was reading Genesis, and in the beginning of Genesis, it was like, you know, God created da 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 da, and He created the male and female. And I was like, really, Lord? Did you have to put down such a basically obvious thing right at the beginning of the Bible? 
And I was watching this interview the other day, and it was um, some teenager had had a gender change, and they'd, they'd been given hormone tablets by the doctor, and now the parents were kind of, I don't know, suing the medical practice or whatever. And they had this professional come on with all the, the whole alphabet after his name. He said, well, there are over 100 genders. And I was like, no, no, no. He made them male and female. Two. Not two with 98 in between, two. What the Holy Spirit wrote here to the lawyer was relevant to the lawyer, but it's relevant to us. The reality is we are half dead. Jesus has paid a price for our inheritance. A lot of you know that my mum passed away quite suddenly at the tail end of last year. And we had 48 hours notice. And on the Monday morning, um, the doctors told us that she had cancer and she hadn't got long left to live. They said she's got hours or days. As it turned out, it was 48 hours. And the doctor said she's ill. She's got cancer. She's got a terminal illness. And I sat there and I thought, well, haven't we all? Aren't we all on the same road? Some might have a shorter time frame, but actually, haven't we all got a terminal illness? It tells us in Romans that the wages of sin are death. And the only way out of that is by having faith in Jesus for eternal life, which is ultimately what the lawyer was asking about in the first place. I've just pulled that apart, but I want to give you a modern illustration. And this concerns my husband, Mark. This is a true story, and a lot of you know he's a farmer. And this is going back a couple of years now, but he was trundling down the road in his tractor, and he saw this guy, and this guy was pulled over, and he thought, oh, maybe he's broken down, and he carried on, and he did whatever he got to do in the field, and he came back, and this guy was still sat in the car, like 40 minutes later. So Mark pulled over behind him, and he said, "Uh, you all right, mate? Like, can I help you? And this guy, he was a coloured guy, and he was from Birmingham, and he said, well, actually, no, he said, "Um, I was going to Craven Arms, I'm on my way back, and my car's broken down, and I haven't got a clue where I am. He said, and my phone, the battery's died. He said, and I'm absolutely stuck, I don't know what to do. So Mark said, well, in that case, I'd better tow you to to the farmyard to leave your car and and take you in to to, to get you home, take you into town. So he, he towed him back to the farm, left his car in the yard, said, send the AA out, you're in Aston Air, but here's where your car is, da-da-da-da-da. Said, jump in my car, and he took him into Bridge North, and he said, there's 20 pounds, and he said, what you've got to do is catch a bus to Wolverhampton, and then at Wolverhampton you get a train, and you get back to Birmingham. And this guy said, well, why would you do that? And he said, well, have you never heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan? This guy said, no. I said, where's that from? Mark said, well, the Bible. This guy said, oh, I'm not allowed to read that book. I can't read that book. So Mark said, hmm. Shared it with him. Shared the parable of the Good Samaritan. Took him into town. Said goodbye to him. Off he went. A couple of weeks later, Mark's in the field. He said, and I got out my tractor and I looked out and I thought, who's this nutter driving over a field without a four by four? And this car was coming towards him, and he gets towards him, and out jumps this guy, and he's waving this 20 pounds. And Mark's like, what are you doing? And he said, well, I went back. He said, and I told my friends about you. He said, and they mocked you. 
and they scorned you and they laughed at the fact that you had given me money and helped me. He said, and I could not get that story out of my head of the Good Samaritan and I've had to drive back and give you the money and say thank you. The Holy Spirit ministered not just through Mark's actions but through his words. So that brings me on to an application. What's the most effective application we can have of loving our neighbour here now? Well, the reality is, Jesus showed his love for others, his neighbours. He did miracles, raised the dead. His life, his death, was all about pointing others to the kingdom of heaven. Everything was. Some people didn't listen. The reality is his family didn't listen. His hometown, Nazareth, didn't listen. He ended up decamping and moving to Capernaum. What did he do? He shook the dust off his cloak, shook the dust off his shoes, and he carried on. He didn't dwell. He didn't stop loving them. But what he had was too important, too big a truth to not carry on and work with We can't do the God bit. We cannot earn our inheritance. Jesus has done it. He was nailed to the cross for each and every person in this room and out of this room. He has paid the price. We cannot earn that in the same way you cannot earn the colour of your eyes. He showed us the gift of grace when he allowed himself to be crucified. He took pity on us, half dead. He came to earth, he ministered. He paid a price for us. He left us in the care of the Holy Spirit until he returns. And the most effective application of loving your neighbour is to do it in the power of the Spirit. The marriage of rooted in the Word and guided by the Spirit That's what fills churches. That's what converts towns to Christians. That's what produces waves of revival in countries. The reality is this book, it's not a self-help book because we can't help ourselves. But the Holy Spirit can guide us. The Holy Spirit can lead us. I've written down some Holy Spirit examples. You're probably going to laugh at some of these now. The Holy Spirit. It says in Acts that the Holy Spirit stopped Paul going to Asia to spread the word. Did the Holy Spirit stand in Paul's doorway and go, No, you're not going. I doubt it. Did Paul try and get on a boat and go somewhere? And there were no tickets, there was no, no, he couldn't got any money, couldn't get there? Possibly. Did he try and get a lift on a train of camels, but they were all laden down with merchandise? Possibly. The Holy Spirit now stops us and blocks us from going into things that he doesn't want us to go into. I've applied for jobs, <laughs> and some of them, I couldn't have written a better job description to match my CV. And like 48 hours later, you know, sorry, but you're not, you're not the right candidate. I'm like, really, Lord? You know, really, Lord? You know, jobs have come up and I've thought, I haven't even seen that advertised. And, you know, I haven't even noticed it. It's not even, it's not even like, I haven't even seen it on the internet. 
The Holy Spirit guides where we go. The Holy Spirit can lead us to places in the same way he led Paul to the Macedonian man. Quite often when you tune into, it's like tuning into a radio station and you find yourself sat on a wall for an hour and a half talking to a complete stranger who's a drug addict, sharing Jesus with them. You find yourself at a bus stop in the middle of the night because somebody's there who's been stabbed. When you live life driven by the power of the Holy Spirit, rooted in the word, it gets quite exciting. It gets a bit hair-raising sometimes. I was praying to the other day, I was, I was talking to God and God's been saying a lot to me about tithes and offerings and what the differences are and that there is a massive difference. And I was talking to God and I was praying about it and I was going, Lord, if I've heard you right, and I always do this because I'm a bit of a wimp, give me an affirmation. I always ask for affirmation, give me an affirmation. And I, I, I home educate Elliot for a couple of days a week, a couple of subjects. And the one subject that day was history. And I opened it up and we have four history topics. And the one that we picked was Henry VIII. And we were looking at Thomas Cromwell. And we looked at Thomas Cromwell's two massive acts of parliament that he is famous for. One was the court of augmentation. The other one was the court of first, of first fruits and tenths, where they had to give, the clergy had to give a tenth of their money to the king, to Henry. And I was like, okay, Lord, I wouldn't have expected it in the history book. Like, the Holy Spirit affirms things. The Holy Spirit speaks through dreams. Last night I woke up in the middle of the night and one of the things about being tuned into the Holy Spirit is you're tuned into everything spiritual. And I had this dream and as I got up to speak and I was, I was laying out my Good Samaritan stuff and people were going, oh, I've got to go, my so-and-so's coming to lunch and oh, I've got to go, I've got to be so-and-so today and oh, I've got to nip out because my nan wants me and, and all these people were leaving and I woke up and God said, if there's one person this message touches, you carry on and you deliver it. The Holy Spirit speaks through the word, speaks through scripture. The Holy Spirit also speaks through other people's words. Do some words wash off or do some words stick? If they stick, why are they sticking? Always pray for affirmation. I felt the Holy Spirit um, guide me and Mark and we had a day of fasting together yesterday and um, he got so naggy oh god so naggy I mean it didn't help the fact that we were like logging all day but he was like really scratchy and I was like what's wrong with you and he was like I'm hungry like, that's the point <laughs> you know? like it, it's not easy following the Holy Spirit but the most effective ministry, whether it's individual ministry, corporate ministry, nationwide ministry, is to move with the Holy Spirit, to be guided by the Holy Spirit. To give a bit of an example, and it is very basic, the more time we spend with the Holy Spirit, a bit like this glass here, it says, be still and know that I am God. And the more time we spend listening to the Holy Spirit, filling up with the Spirit, asking for the Spirit to guide us, and we keep going and we keep going, we hit a point where we can't contain it. 
And the reality is we can stand at the front and we can say, go out in mission, go out and evangelize. Or like today, go out and be a good neighbor. But when you're that full of the spirit, we almost can't stop it. it it's, you don't even listen to human words because you're tuned into God's words. There's nothing that we can say that makes any difference because you're God-driven. So I'm going to conclude. This parable, it's about the life-changing power of costly love. Jesus' love for us. His promised inheritance. Eternal life. When people become children of God, we cannot earn it. We can have faith for it and we can live it. And through love, we can point our neighbours to it. And in answer to the question, why were the first two of the Ten Commandments and why were these commands of Jesus? Love God and then love your neighbour? Because when you love God that much, that you're that full of him, that you're in love with him, that you can't shut up about him, you can't help but love your neighbour. I'm going to finish there. Um, we're, going to, we're still going to a period of worship, yeah. What I was going to suggest was, if anybody wants prayer, wants prayer to be, just be touched by the Spirit, wants prayer for the Holy Spirit to, 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 to be revealed to them, wants prayer for guidance, come and have prayer. Come and have prayer from somebody. But rather than maybe standing at the front and being on show, while the band are playing in an extended period of worship, Maybe if you're going to the foyer, and we'll pray for you in the foyer, but it's just a bit more private. Is that okay? Yeah.